if all these interventions resulted in a more secure United States of America, a more prosperous United States of America, an international order that was more peaceful, more accommodating to human rights and democracy, I would say, well, maybe militarism works. But that hasn't been the case. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. U.S. troops are now pulling out of Afghanistan, bringing to a close America's longest war. U.S. intelligence predicts that the Taliban will take over Afghanistan within six months, returning the country to much the way we found it when we invaded in 2001. Since 9-11, the global war on terror in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan has resulted in the deaths of 800,000 people, including 7,000 Americans, while spawning terror groups including ISIS and other jihadi groups. America's endless wars have been justified by the often repeated assertion of our leaders that we alone can solve the world's problems. Our causes are always righteous, and when things go wrong, well, it wasn't our fault. As Dick Cheney famously reassured us in 2003 when the U.S. invaded Iraq, quote, we will be greeted as liberators. My guest, Andrew Basevich, is a Vietnam veteran and a leading foreign policy critic. He calls this American exceptionalism and says it has been a delusion and led to a succession of disasters around the world, including the wars in Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Basevich is a regular guest analyst on network and cable news, including CNN and MSNBC, and a frequent contributor to the Washington Post, New York Times, and the American Conservative. He is a graduate of West Point, served 23 years in the U.S. Army, and is a professor emeritus of history and international relations at Boston University. Basevich is president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His newest book is After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transformed. Andrew Basevich, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. What is the American apocalypse and what should come after it? Well, that's a somewhat melodramatic reference to the events of the last uh, year, uh, 18 months. Uh, been a terrible period of time uh, in the history of our country. Uh, apocalyptic in the sense that uh, during this interval, we have collectively uh, experienced, uh, you know, uh, environmental catastrophes, probably most prominently the wildfires that swept across the uh, Pacific coast last year. We've experienced uh, experienced a pandemic that killed 600,000 of our fellow citizens. It's an astonishing number substantially greater than the number of Americans killed in World War II. Uh, as a consequence of the government's response to the pandemic, it was a necessary response, but nonetheless, uh, our fellow citizens uh, suffered enormous economic damage, uh, lost jobs, businesses destroyed. And, for much of that, we had an utterly incompetent, in my judgment, uh, narcissistic president presiding over the country whose response to these cumulative catastrophes, in my judgment, not everybody would agree, was uh, utterly uh, 
inadequate. Um, we also had during that period of time, uh, the, the beginning of a reckoning with American racism. On that point, I would argue that the reckoning was long overdue, uh, but it, it has turned out to be another trial for our country in no small part because it basically uh, provoked a, a racist, white racist, white supremacist uh, response. So I'm old enough to remember 1968, which was another terrible year, really terrible year. Uh, but, but I think 2020, 2021 uh, bears comparison. So mostly to, maybe for the purposes of being melodramatic, I said, oh, that's an apocalypse. But the real purpose of the book is to try to then uh, think through what the implications of those ap apocalyptic events ought to be for our role in the world. In other words, it's primarily about foreign policy. And you begin your book uh, writing, quote, recovering from the ill effects of American exceptionalism will entail remembering things that most Americans would rather forget. Um, explain what you mean and, and start by explaining what American exceptionalism is uh, so that we don't skip over the basics here. Well, it's a sense of our chosenness, you know, a, a conviction that we have been singled out, singled out by God, singled out by providence, singled out by history to, to perform a unique function. You know, to bring humankind to its intended destination, which of course assumes that that intended destination can be uh, identified. That's our claim. I mean, it's a claim that in many respects goes back to the, the, the time of the revolution. It's certainly a claim that uh, was strongly reinforced by events such as World War II and the Cold War, <clears throat> and perhaps most of all, the aftermath of the Cold War, the end of the Cold War. Um, I think it, that claim is deeply pernicious. Uh, it is based on no evidence whatsoever. You know, if you're a believer, it's hard to find pieces of scripture that says that God has, has identified us as his agent. Uh, but uh, this notion of our chosenness is deeply embedded in our politics. I think it's also deeply embedded in our sort of collective psyche. You know, it's what, it's what politicians say, whether they believe it or not, but it's what they say in order to, uh, to demonstrate their supposed grasp of where history is headed. You compare white privilege on the local stage to American privilege on a global stage. And I couldn't help but think you were writing this book last year when the racial reckoning, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, took to the streets and really took over the national narrative and our national self-perception. Were you forced in the course of writing this book? Did it change your own perceptions of what the problem is? And, and I found it interesting that you were weaving together that local and global stage the way you did. 
Well, I don't think, uh, I know, I know that uh, growing up, whether when I was 10 or when I was 30 or when I was 50, uh, I, I know that I would not have thought of myself as a beneficiary of white privilege. I would have thought of myself as someone who certainly uh, was blessed, you know, blessed to be an American, you know, blessed to be born of my parents who loved me and cared for me, blessed in terms of opportunities that uh, came my way. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, have considered all that through the prism of, uh, of, of white privilege. I would have thought that I got some lucky breaks. I would have thought I would have thought that I earned things, you know, that I worked hard uh, to 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 get where I got to be. So I do think that the events of the last year or so uh, were an awakening for me. Uh, and 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 it was probably a good thing. Probably a good thing. Did it make you see? America's global adventures in a new light, you know, sort of infused now with being, as you write, um, kind of an expression of that white privilege on a global scale. Well, yes and no. I mean, I had I have been writing about uh, American exceptionalism, I guess, for 20 years or so mm -hmm. uh, and have described American exceptionalism as kind of the uh, another version of uh, of the original sin of America's original sin. People would say slavery was the original sin. I'm not going to argue about that, but I think you know this this conviction of our chosenness also, in some sense, is figured as an Amer as an original sin. And I have been sensitive to that and have been writing about that long before uh, George Floyd uh, was was murdered, and we and we came to this. A time of racial reckoning. I think that probably on balance that the racial reckoning reinforced my uh, willingness to, um, to push back against uh, the notion of our, of our chosenness. Now, most of my writing has been about foreign policy you know, very broadly speaking, it's been about American uh, imperialism, American uh, militarism. I think in this book, one of the things I try to do is to reflect a little bit on how American racism is connected to American militarism uh, in ways that I probably would not have been sensitive to if I would writing three or four or five or 10 years earlier. Right. You're a graduate of West Point, a Vietnam vet, served in the U.S. Army for 23 years, and now for quite some time have been a harsh critic of the use and abuse of American militarism. What changed you or even radicalized you about the role of the military? Oh, I think the events that followed the end of the Cold War, uh, most of my time on active duty was during the Cold War. And I would have, if somebody had asked me, I would have said, yeah, I'm a Cold Warrior. I believe in the cause. You know, I believe in the necessity of, of resisting any potential aggressive conduct by the Soviet Union. You know, I believed 
that it was necessary for us to maintain a strong military, to maintain a U.S. military presence in Europe, for example, in Western Europe. I served in Western Europe for seven years, uh, mostly in the 1980s. I think what what changed my outlook was what happened when the Cold War ended. And I naively entertained the notion, well, now now that this great crisis, this protracted crisis of our time, now that it's ended, I thought, America will go back to being a normal nation. We won't find it necessary to maintain tens of thousands of troops in Europe and tens of thousands of troops in Japan and tens of thousands of troops in, in, on the Korean peninsula. We won't, we won't feel an imperative to have far and away the biggest military budget in the world. We'll become more modest in our outlook on the role we should play. What happened was just the opposite. Mm-hmm. What happened after the end of the Cold War was uh, a great, uh, you know, outburst of military interventionism. You know, the Cold War, excuse me, the Berlin Wall came down in October of 89. Already in December of 89, George Herbert Walker Bush initiated the first post-Cold War military intervention, long forgotten. I'm talking about the invention uh, in Panama to overthrow Noriega. What, eight months later, Saddam Hussein invades and annexes Kuwait. And that leads to a half million American soldiers deployed to the Persian Gulf for Operation Desert Storm. And almost immediately thereafter, there's the intervention in, in Somalia and on and on and on. So the Cold War had ended and the American penchant, and, and remember, it was a bipartisan penchant. It wasn't something that was, you know, hawkish Republicans were doing this and dovish Democrats were standing in opposition. A bipartisan penchant for military uh, activism uh, that, you know, uh, then peaked uh, in the wake of, uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of 9-11 when we embarked upon this global war on terrorism, which even though we don't call it that anymore, basically continues down to the present day as you and I are talking. I think what is like 24, 36 hours ago, uh, the Biden, President Biden ordered airstrikes uh, in, in, in Syria and Iraq. Iraq's our ally. And without getting their green light, we're conducting airstrikes on Iraqi soil. So, so A, there's a penchant for militarism, and B, guess what? It hadn't worked. In other words, if, 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 if all these interventions uh, resulted in a, a more secure United States of America, a more prosperous United States of America, an international order that was more peaceful, more accommodating to human rights and democracy, I would say, well, Maybe militarism works, but that hasn't been the case. I mean, it has not been the case. The consequences have been uh, strikingly negative. You know, estimates of uh, 
total U.S. expenditures for the since 9-11 or something on the order of $7 trillion? For what? Uh, and, and let's not talk about the number of Americans killed, the number of Americans wounded, the number of you know, Iraqis, of Afghans that are displaced, they're killed. I mean, it's, a, it's been a catastrophe. Let me uh, ask about the, so pre- the Afghan war. So President Biden announces, has announced the end of the America's longest war, 20 years in Afghanistan. Should we have even been in Afghanistan? And what do you think it accomplished? Well, we, yes. Uh, so the, given that the then existing Afghan government, meaning the Taliban, in 2001, provided sanctuary to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, given their refusal to cough him up, I do believe it was necessary for us to, to demonstrate the consequences of any regime harboring anti-American terrorists. In other words, the Taliban needed to pay a price, and they paid a price. Uh, when, when we uh, ejected them from power. What doesn't follow is that we had then to embark upon a grand nation-building exercise, which we have been engaged in for the past 20 years, attempting to, to install in Kabul uh, a legitimate, effective regime supported by effective security forces. This, this big nation-building project. I mean, it, it, you didn't have to be an expert in the history of Afghanistan to conclude that nation-building in Afghanistan by outsiders, by Western outsiders, uh, is, a, is an iffy proposition. But that's what we've been doing for 20 years. And the mission has failed. And uh, President Biden, he may not say, the, he won't say words like defeat, or failure, but his decision to terminate the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan is a de facto admission of failure, and quite frankly, it's long overdue. You've uh, taken the notion of defunding the police and run with it and said what we really ought to be doing is defunding the military and uh, proposed in your book a dramatic scaling down of the U.S. military and its role on the global stage. What should the military look like today? Well, you can't answer that question without answering a prior question, which is what, what, what are our appropriate national security priorities? You know, what, what, what threatens us? What do we need to worry about? Uh, the the habits carried over from the Cold War tell us we need to worry about Russia, a traditional enemy, and the People's Republic of China, a rising power, which basically a rising power that now is stepping into the role played during the 20th century by Imperial Japan, Nazi Germany, and and the Soviet Union. I don't think those are the most important concerns. That that that's, that that is not those threats are not going to prevent you uh, from sleeping well at night. What threatens us are our more immediate concerns, 
Environmental degradation is a very good example. Disease is a very good example. Insecure borders are a very good example. In other words, what, what we need to be doing is uh, when we talk about funding and defunding, we need to do a better job of funding the agencies whose mission is immediately and directly relevant to providing for the well-being of Americans where they live, where we live. So that's probably more money to the Coast Guard and less money to the United States Navy. I mean, I'm, I am not able to, you know, as we talk to say, well, I think the, uh, the Pentagon budget should be instead of, you know, whatever it is, $780 billion a year, I think it should be $524 billion a year. I do think that the, the notion, uh, the, 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 the imperative of maintaining a global military presence, U.S. troops still in Europe, what, almost 80 years after the end of World War II, U.S. troops in Japan, U.S. troops in, in, uh, in, in, in Korea, 70 or so years after the Korean War, U.S. troops in the Persian Gulf, where they have achieved almost nothing that would re relate, uh, we would call to a, a positive in terms of outcomes. I think all of that needs to be reconsidered. Perhaps we, we, do, we need a United States military. It needs to be an effective one. But perhaps it ought to be stationed closer to home to deal with threats here in our hemisphere. I mean, that's the line of analysis that I think should be pursued. Uh, but of course, uh, the, the, the national security habits are so ingrained uh, that real alternatives to the status quo don't receive much of a, much of a hearing. How does what you're proposing differ from President Trump's America first policy? If well, but he, he really didn't have a policy. I mean, he didn't have a strategy. He had a slogan. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a slogan that I don't even think he understood. I mean, it, it was a slogan uh, embraced because he or his political advisors uh, realized that it was going to resonate with a substantial number of American voters, as indeed it did. I mean, why did it resonate? Because by 2016, a very substantial number of our fellow citizens said, these wars are stupid. Mm -hmm. And we need to figure out an alternative to simply continuing them forever. And so he comes up with, or again, his advice, America first. And that resonated with people. Now, it, it also was, a, you know, a, a, a sort of a sly because it was a it was a phrase that had a history. You know, the history dating back to the period in the late 1930s when there was a very lively debate among Americans about whether or not to uh, intervene in, in the European war on behalf of Great Britain against uh, against the Germans. Uh, but um, so he had a slogan, but he never had a strategy. You wrote an op-ed for the Boston Globe last month that was headlined, My son was killed in Iraq 14 years ago. 
who's responsible. How do you answer the question that you pose? Well, I mean, my answer is we did. We are responsible. This is a democracy. You know, we, we the, the, the people who exercise power in Washington exercise power because we, the people, put them there. And, and, and it, 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 if, they, if they are not held to account, then we fail to hold them to account. So I think whatever the United States government does, and this is not, this is not uh, uh, apply only to military policy, but what the United States government does, ultimately the American people are responsible for what it does. Uh, if, if we were not a democracy, then you might say, well, that, that argument doesn't hold water, but we are. You say that you don't blame President George W. Bush, and I wonder why not? He Bush was selling a war based on lies, based on weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist, and trying to make a connection between Saddam Hussein and 9-11 that didn't exist. Why do you hold him blameless? He has an enormous... Oh, you know, I, did I say... Who said blameless? Who used that term? Okay. That's your term. That's not Correct mine. Correct me. Okay. No, he was, a, he, he, was an, uh, he was utterly inept. Uh, his, his response to 9-11, his administration's response, was utterly reckless and wrongheaded. Uh, and there, there certainly... We, we, we might differ on specifics here, but there certainly was some level of conscious deception in building a, a case for going to war with uh, Iraq. Whether or not that rose to the level of lies, I don't really know, but there certainly was, was deception. But again, we elected George W. Bush, we, and, and therefore there has to be some level of responsibility for what he acted. Now, in, a, in, in particular, I might say, he runs for a second term in 2004. And we elect him again. Apparently, a majority of our fellow citizens thought well enough of, of, of what he did in going to war with Iraq. We said, yeah, let's give him another four years. So I do think that there is, it's important to recognize some level of response, collective responsibility on the part of citizens for what the government does in our name and ostensibly uh, on our behalf. Well, I have to correct you. Uh, we have to recall he was elected by a majority of electoral votes, but by a minority of citizens. Um, yeah. Oh, you can correct me all you want, but that's the way the Constitution works. Yeah. You know, yes. and, and frankly, I don't, I don't I don't remember. I don't remember back in 2000 or 2016, Democrats opposing the Electoral College. In 2016, the Democratic Party campaigned based on a calculation that we can win this state and that state and that state, and they will all add up to a majority of, it's only after they won the popular vote, but lost in the Electoral College, that we started to hear the complaints about, oh, this is so undemocratic. If it's undemocratic, then let's change it now rather than using it as an excuse uh, by failed candidates, which is what it, what it was. And again, I'm not, a, I'm not a particular supporter of the Electoral College. I mean, I, I think on balance, we'd probably be better if we elected a president simply on the popular vote. 
if you were the, the, the people who are in the establishment don't act on that. If you were Biden's Secretary of State instead of Antony Blinken, what would you do? Or I should say, what would you do differently? Well, I think I think uh, whether this is up to Blinken, whether it's up to the president, whether it's up to you know, the president and his various his entire national security team, I think there needs to be a broad reevaluation of of security priorities. I am very much in the camp that says that the United States should withdraw from NATO. Why? Because the Europeans are fully capable of providing for their own security. So we should encourage them to do that. And they'll never do it as long as the United States remains part of NATO. Uh, I, think the, I think the United States needs to terminate its military involvement uh, in the greater Middle East, which dates basically back to the Carter administration and has produced nothing of value while costing us and many others dearly. So there, are, there needs to be a, a fundamental rethinking of priorities. And again, as I suggested, greater awareness that what really matters at the end of the day is providing for the security and well-being of Americans where they live, right here. Our, our collective well-being right here. And it doesn't seem to me that, uh, you know, keeping troops in Europe or Iraq or South Korea uh, is the way to do that. May once have been, but this is a different time. Well, Andrew Basevich, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Andrew Basevich is a Vietnam veteran, professor emeritus of history and international relations at Boston University, and president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His new book is After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transformed.